You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're talking with Anant Argawal, founder and CEO of edX. Anant has been a computer science professor at MIT for 32 years. In 2012, he founded edX, a partnership between MIT and Harvard to extend open access to the courses taught by the best professors in the world, and today he shares more of his story and the work he's doing to extend access to more learners. Let's listen in to his interview with Tom. Anand uh, Eggerwall, it's great to have you on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here. Did you grow up in uh, Mangalore, India? Yes, I did. Uh, I grew up in uh, Mangalore in uh, India. Uh, it's a little town by the coast, the Arabian Sea coast of India. I love uh, southern Indian food. Did you, uh, did you have a good math and science education in high school? Well, both the southern Indian food and the southern Indian math and science education uh, <laughs> both very good. I think the food was uh, the food was much spicier and better. Yes, uh, we had. Uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, the quality of the education is directly correlated to the quality of uh, teachers. And uh, I had some. Uh, I actually, went to a uh, a Catholic high school, a right. Catholic school, Saint Aloysius College, and uh, they had some uh, great teachers in both math, science, and other subjects. Uh, how did you get to IIT Madras on the, on the East Coast? Uh, by fluke. <laughs> uh, you know, it's uh, very hard to get into the uh, IITs. Right. And, uh, IIT Madras was no exception. Uh, the, uh, uh, there's a huge entrance exam, and uh, uh, 1% of people that apply get in. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to uh, uh, to get in, and uh, uh, it was on the east coast of India. It's on the uh, Bay of Bengal right. side, and I'm very fortunate uh, to 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 have uh, made it through to IIT Madras. That must have been in the um, was that the late seventies, early eighties, nineteen seventy seven. Did you? Yeah, that's the year I went to school. Did you uh, drive to Madras? Like it's like seven hundred kilometers across the southern. Part of India, right? Yeah, it, it was. Uh, uh, we could not go as the crow flies from Mangalore to Madras because there right. is a big mountain range called the Western Ghats that come in the middle. Uh, so instead, uh, you take the train. So I took a train uh, that goes south, uh, almost all the way to the southern tip of India, right. and then goes goes back up north, like in a nice little smiley face from Mangalore to. Uh, to uh, uh, Madras, and it was a uh, it's uh, uh, a about a twenty hour twenty hour train ride. Uh, but you you got a great education. This is the people don't remember that it um, there really wasn't many well developed computer science uh, degrees back in the in the late seventies, right? Well, you know, uh, there were not many computer science degrees in the late seventies, and neither uh, uh, neither did I have one. Uh, IIT Madras. Uh, did not have a computer science degree. Um, in fact, my degree was in uh, electrical engineering. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, I learned to program uh, by myself. Uh, I, I didn't take a programming class. I just learned to program myself. There was, uh, uh, we had a huge uh, IBM uh, mainframe. I forget. I think it was a, uh, a 370 or one of those mainframes. Right. Where uh, we programmed using uh, punch cards. I I was doing the same thing uh, uh, at the same time in the late seventies, and you'd miss a 
period on a punch card in the middle of a 300 card deck and have to go back to the computer center, right? You know, Tom, you know what's worse than that? <laughs> what's worse than that uh, is you're carrying a deck of punch cards. Right. And the sequence matters. Oh, it does. And you're carrying a deck of punch cards. And as you're riding your bike in the hot, steamy <laughs> weather uh, to the computer center to give them your deck of punch cards. And you can see where the story ends. And you drop your deck of punch cards and then they're scattered all over the floor. And, uh, <laughs> and now uh, you have a real mess on your hands. So you're trying to uh, get the whole thing back into gear. <laughs> Uh, you you did well enough at IIT uh, to get into Stanford, where you uh, finished a, a PhD in in both double E and computer science. Is that right? Right. I I went on to do my PhD at uh, Stanford, and uh, uh, my my PhD thesis was uh, certainly uh, uh, very much in uh, uh, computer architecture and uh, sort of a computer science related topic. Um, and I was in the computer systems lab, which was sort of in the a lab that sat between computer science and double E. And my advisor was actually John Hennessy. Uh, you know, I joined him in 1980, uh, you know, late 1982, uh, when he was a, a young, un untenured professor at Stanford. Well, uh, you've been at MIT now for 32 years. And I, I noted that um, at one point you led the computer science and AI lab. When, when did you take that over? Yeah, so I've, I've been teaching at MIT for, uh, as you said, 32 years since uh, uh, late 87. And uh, in uh, 2011, uh, I took over as the director of MIT's computer science and AI lab, which is sort of the, uh, the hub of uh, the computer science and AI activity at uh, MIT. Right. And, and, it, and as a result, one of the hubs uh, for, the, for planet Earth of, uh, of AI I I noticed uh, Anant uh, last night when I was looking at the lab that one of the predecessor organizations was the AI Lab, which was founded in um, 1959, the year I was born. It, some people don't realize that people have been working hard at uh, at AI for 60 years now. I know. It looks like you and I were born in the same year, uh, 1959. Yeah. I did not realize that the AI lab uh, was born in the same year. The, uh, 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 so the computer science and AI lab uh, at MIT, uh, CSAIL, as it is better known, mm -hmm. uh, was a, uh, two labs came together. Uh, the lab for computer science and the AI lab uh, came together and uh, joined up in the early part of the century and became uh, CSAIL as a combined lab. Uh, tell us about the origin story of edX you guys are about eight years old now right yeah we are eight years young and uh, <laughs> uh, it relates to uh, c sale uh, we were in c sale and uh, uh, in uh, 2011 uh, we were sort of dreaming at MIT with a number of MIT leaders uh, uh, Raphael Reif who was the provost at that time uh, other leaders we were brainstorming about how uh, technology, has transformed uh, every field known to mankind, uh, digital technology. But uh, uh, education has been uh, immune or had been immune until then. Uh, there hadn't been any major innovation in education for a while. And uh, uh, you know, MIT had launched MIT OpenCourseWare uh, 10 years 
previous to that around uh, 2000. And so we're thinking, you know, uh, uh, how about applying digital technology to education and uh, taking education to the next level? Um, and so uh, computer, the computer science and AI lab was a natural place to do this. So uh, in 2011, uh, we incubated uh, uh, edX at uh, in the basement, literally in the basement of the computer science and AI lab. Right? It was a, a skunk works project. And uh, 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 we were uh, doing it in the basement of the uh, of uh, CCL. Uh, we built uh, we built the whole new open source platform. We decided to go out as a uh, a nonprofit. Um, Harvard uh, and MIT teamed up at that point, and uh, uh, it, it was initially called MITx. You know, we were doing things so fast, uh, we didn't have a name for what we were doing, and so uh, uh, you know, we set up. Uh, it's codenamed when we. The press release came out in uh, on December nineteenth of two thousand and eleven, and we codenamed it MITx. And then people said, "Wow, that's a great name!" Uh, uh, you know, ooh, which agency did you pay to come up with that name? And we said, "Oh, <laughs> we thought to ourselves, it's a placeholder." You know, this code uh, this code name is not half bad, and so we so it became MITx. And then um, Harvard and MIT teamed up, and uh, we uh, uh, became edX in uh, May, and edX was launched formally. In May of 2012. So this wasn't happening in a vacuum. Um, on the left coast, uh, Andrew Ning and Daphne Kohler had formed Coursera in that same year. I I usually think back to the beginning of MOOCs uh, as Andrew Ning's uh, course the the year before. But w- what would you claim as the first r- real MOOC? You know, it's, uh, uh, there's always been a challenge uh, in defining uh, what is a MOOC. I like to go back to uh, MIT's Open Courseware, which came out in uh, uh, you know more than a decade before all of this, uh, the MOOC movement, so to speak, where uh, uh, MIT put up all its courses online uh, and all the course content available online for free to the whole world. Uh, my own course in circuits and electronics was part of it. Uh, you know that inspired Sal Khan uh, to create a lot of the uh, uh, tutorials and exercises and so on uh, that he built on Khan Academy, and, and certainly Sal Khan was a huge inspiration, huge, huge inspiration to me. Uh, turns out he was my student at MIT in the mid '90s, and so uh, so for us the progression was open courseware, uh, the video uh, uh, using videos effectively and and uh, computer grading as in uh, Khan Academy. And then we added, certi- uh, edX was, uh, our course on edX was the first time we offered a certificate on edX. It was the first time a discussion forum got integrated with the course for the first time, uh, you know, as part of the platform. And so uh, uh, I would say, you know, a number of things came together as we launched our first courses on edX. So uh, as I, I mentioned, other folks were organizing around MOOCs as for-profit and venture-backed organizations, you decided to launch as a as this open nonprofit platform. How do you think about the pros and cons of doing that? You know, it's one of those things when you're starting something this big, uh, uh, you don't, you know, you, you do spend some time thinking about uh, how you're going to do it. My own experience uh, was not just as an MIT professor, but uh, I had started uh, several companies, uh, all for-profit companies before that. 
Um, edX is my first nonprofit. And so in the early days of edX in 2011, uh, the uh, leadership of uh, uh, Harvard and MIT and, and, and myself and others, we brainstormed about what's the best way of doing this. And uh, um, you know, very quickly, it, it took us all of seven seconds to say, look, it needs to be a nonprofit and it needs to be an open source platform. And I think it's sort of the way we think in Cambridge. Uh, I think it's uh, the water from the Charles River that makes you think like this. We felt education is a human right. And we need to be making decisions for education in a way that is good for humanity, unfettered from the uh, constraints or uh, what shall I say, uh, 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 you know, uh, constraints or challenges of, um, of for profits. And so we launched it as a nonprofit. We also announced this will be an open source platform so that anybody could also take our platform and use it uh, for free. So, uh, so I think uh, it's it's a Harvard MIT uh, legacy that uh, we do things in this way. Uh, and the fundamental difference between differences between a for profit and a non profit. I think the for profits would 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 uh, lead you to believe that oh, it's just a tax status. And my argument is, if if you believe that the only difference between a non profit and a for profit is tax status, then boy, do I have a bridge to sell you. Um, uh, the fundamental differences between a nonprofit and a for-profit, you know, almost every single decision we make at edX uh, uh, is from the lens of being a nonprofit, and uh, we make decisions very fundamentally differently. So, for example, making a platform open source. Uh, we are the only MOOC platform that is open source. Uh, if you're a for-profit, why would you give away your crown jewels to the world for free? And because we were a nonprofit, we made it open source because that was the right thing to do. And you make decisions as, as being the right thing to do, even if financially it may not be the optimal uh, decision for the shareholders. And so, and because of that decision, um, the edX platform has just a very large number of uh, assessment types and so on that were contributed to by the community. Uh, it has also become, if you count open edX and edX instantiations, it has also now become the world's largest uh, uh, a learning platform. Uh, it's got over 50 million learners from every single country in the world. It's the largest learning platform today. So the open source decision is one example of uh, how you make decisions as a nonprofit. Uh, I think uh, a number of other decisions, such as uh, the kind of programs you launch. Um, we launched micro bachelor's programs that are modular programs targeted at uh, 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 learners around the world who uh, haven't been able to complete a bachelor's degree. A lot of what we do really comes back to our nonprofit roots. Hi, I'm Nate McLennan, co-author of the new book, The Power of Place. Something unexpected happens when you explore a community for the first time. Your worldview shifts with each question, each interaction, and each inquiry. You understand the place more deeply, and yet the deeper you go, the more you realize you have to learn. And the deeper you go, the more you see the opportunities to make a positive impact. This is the power of place. My most important learning has come from place in the outdoors, jobs, conversations, and explorations, all teaching me skills and knowledge that were just as important as what I learned in school. I see that I can make an impact. I see that I can always learn. And I see that my actions create ripple effects across communities and ecosystems. This is what our young people need to learn, that they matter and their place matters. They can make change happen in place, and every learner has the right to make a difference.
You're invited to explore or continue your own place-based journey with us through our new book, The Power of Place. The Power of Place is available for order at the link in the show notes or by visiting gettingsmart.com slash powerofplace. I guess some some learners might be surprised to learn that um, that you've had 50 million learners on your platform and that MOOCs are alive and well. They, they, they launched with such hype in uh, 2013, uh, 2012, 2013, uh, people have sort of forgotten about them. But w- w- would you say that that these large-scale uh, open courseware platforms are, are very much alive and well today? Uh, absolutely. They're very much alive and well. I think the hype is gone, uh, thank goodness. So we can all hunker down and, and do what is right. Uh, uh, the uh, the learners on open edX platforms and edX uh, are way over not just 50 way over maybe even 60 million many countries have adopted open edX like China Russia uh, uh, Israel France and others and so uh, the whole uh, uh, MOOC movement is uh, alive and well although the hype is not there which is good today on edX uh, we have launched uh, a number of degree programs. We have uh, nearly 15 master's degree programs, uh, including a, uh, a radical, uh, you know, the $24,000 MBA from Boston University, a $10,000 uh, cybersecurity master's from Georgia Tech, and a $10,000 computer science master's from UT Austin, uh, an accounting master's from Indiana, and uh, uh, one from ASU. So we launched some really high quality, incredibly ultra low priced master's degrees. And that's the other thing. If you look at uh, a master's in computer science, it's uh, $10,000. And as a nonprofit, our partners and edX look to see, you know, how can we provide the most affordable option? But if you look at the for profits, uh, their master's degrees are uh, two to three times more expensive uh, uh, you know, than, uh, than edX. And so... Uh, the whole way of thinking is different. The hype is gone, but uh, we're offering degrees. We're offering new micro-credentials. Uh, uh, you know, we launched uh, the micro-bachelors, uh, which is a modular credential at the bachelor's level. We launched that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we are upskilling and reskilling workforces around the uh, U.S. and the world. So uh, the, the online learning movement and the MOOC movement is uh, going really, really strong. Is is this a big future trend of, of modularity of moving away from degrees and moving towards uh, sh- shorter skill-oriented uh, certificates? Um, I wouldn't say that it's moving away from degrees. I would say that the two are very synergistic. Uh, I think people okay. want to have their uh, cake and they want to eat it too. Uh, you know, a lot so of people, maybe it's people. just the move from thinking of education as something that happens uh, from birth to age 20 to a shift to lifelong learning. Ab- absolutely. Where uh, people want to learn throughout life. And uh, and uh, in the past, all you could get was a, a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. And it's stovepiped. You got it from one institution, cost a lot of money. You went through a uh, arduous uh, admissions process. And uh, uh, you have to go to a campus, and it is really hard. Uh, but with edX, what we've done is at the master's level, we've launched MicroMasters, which is a modular credential that you can earn from one university. 
uh, you can stack up multiple of these and get a full degree. So for example, we have a master's in supply chain management from Arizona State University on edX, uh, but the micro masters for that comes from MIT. So we are seeing a new model of education where you create these modular credentials and then you can stack up multiple of these credentials from multiple universities uh, fully online, open admissions, uh, radically priced and get full degrees. So you can have modularity and you can get full degrees as well, which ultimately gives incredible choice, uh, incredible, incredible choice to the learner. You can also be learning throughout life because, uh, you know, uh, degrees and lifelong learning don't go hand in hand. Uh, let's say I'm 35 years old and I already have a bachelor's or a master's degree. You know, what are the chances I'm going to go back to college and spend two years in college uh, away from my family? Uh, no way. So uh, uh, for lifelong learning, we have to have these modular credit-backed credentials. And the credit backing is important because once I get the modular credential, I might say, hey, this was great. Uh, you know, uh, maybe two years from now, I get another modular credential. And then I realize, you know what, uh, I'm halfway through to a degree. So let me go and get a few more of these credentials, and then I get another degree. And so uh, the modularity and being able to learn in these modular bite-sized chunks and get credentials in bite-sized chunks is very, very important for the future of work and upskilling and lifelong learning. Are, are you creating more corporate uh, partnerships, and do you see more uh, corporate more employers um, sponsoring uh, online learning? Absolutely. Uh, I think we're seeing more and more of that. Uh, edX has a very robust business-to-business uh, -business operation where we have over 500 companies uh, that are enrolling their learners into our uh, MicroMasters programs. We just launched our MicroBachelors program. And our MicroBachelors program, which is... Uh, a modular program at the bachelor's level. Uh, it's about uh, six credits. It's open admissions. It costs merely $166 per credit, which is uh, pennies on the dollar compared to the price at uh, a lot of universities. And uh, it stacks up to full uh, bachelor's degrees as well. And so uh, just as an example, uh, there's a micro bachelor's in computer science from uh, NYU, uh, one in IT from Western governors. And so we worked with a lot of companies. Um, in fact, many companies liked it so much that they funded the development of it. Uh, Walmart, SunTrust, uh, Lumina Foundation, uh, IBM, a number of our other partners, company partners, uh, were very excited about it. Uh, Boeing have given us a lot of feedback and funding to launch the micro bachelors. And now uh, many of these companies are having their employees uh, take these programs, and uh, we are actively working with a number of employers who pay for their employees uh, to take these programs because for the employer, um, so it solves a number of problems. Um, the one is that they get to retain the employees. Uh, and if you look at uh, some of the, uh, the survey from uh, Deloitte, which showed that the number one thing that millennials are asking for their, from their employers uh, is uh, professional development and more education. And so uh, this is an incredible incredible way for employers to retain their employee base by having them uh, paying for their modular credentials. And because these credentials are modular, uh, an employer doesn't have to either get stuck by a big master's degree bill or a bachelor's degree bill or, uh, you know, opportunity cost of losing their employee for four years. Here, uh, the employee can be doing these modular credentials in small chunks and 
and, and learning at their own pace as they go along, and the employers support it. It looks like they're in just in the last year, we've seen uh, the big tech giants sort of move into the education space themselves. Amazon made a, a big announcement recently that they were going to spend $700 million upskilling their own workforce. They've introduced a lot of their own courseware. Uh, Google has introduced some. Uh, do, do you see the tech giants as new competitors in technical education, or are they partners or sometimes both? Um, I think it's sometimes both is the right answer. Uh, it's uh, sometimes both is sort of the right answer in most things. Uh, so we have uh, incredible, incredible micro-credentials and courses on edX from uh, um, IBM uh, in uh, topics like uh, how do you create a chatbot and AI and machine learning and data science. We have uh, uh, you know, over a hundred courses, uh, you know, over time from Microsoft in topics like uh, how do you visualize uh, uh, data uh, in Excel and uh, uh, Power, uh, you know, various tools, uh, machine learning. We have courses from the Linux Foundation. We have uh, uh, courses from uh, Red Hat. We have uh, uh, a number of courses from uh, many, many companies uh, that are actively not just consuming courses on edX from our university partners, but they're also offering courses. And uh, learners are very excited about learning from both companies and from universities. I suspect as a nonprofit, it probably makes it a bit easier for you to partner with them in different ways than it, it might be for other players in the MOOC space. Um, absolutely. I think, uh, uh, you know, we are a nonprofit. And so uh, uh, in that sense, uh, we tend to be much more of a partner for some of the companies uh, versus a, uh, uh, a longer term competitor. And also because a platform is uh, open source, uh, many of the companies uh, also use the open source edX platform. So for example, uh, Microsoft uh, did all of these things. They had courses on edX and uh, Microsoft uh, certificates on edX uh, are signed by none other than uh, you know Sacha Nadella, their CEO. And so they're incredibly valuable to people. Uh, they also use edX courses for their own employees inside uh, Microsoft. And third, uh, they've, uh, they also have used the open edX platform to launch their own courses on their own uh, platform they manage themselves using open edX. And so uh, edX tends to be just a great partner, both because mm -hmm. we are nonprofit and we also uh, open source. All right. This is a, a, a new topic, but it's a, a challenging one. What, what about success skills or what some people might call soft skills? I, mean, I think you've proven in the last decade that you can you can help people upskill in technical areas really well. But how in the world do professionals keep building both tech uh, skills and job skills? And how can MOOCs help here? Oh, MOOCs can absolutely help you. What is interesting is that uh, you know, we take a lot of guidance from corporations. edX has a corporate advisory board, and about four years ago, uh, you know, when they were advising us as to what kind of courses to create, we were all ready and prepared for, oh, give us more Python, give us more AI. But they, of course, told us that, uh, analytics and so on. But what came loud and clear is they wanted courses in soft skills and leadership and so on. So we went out and partnered with a number of our partners, uh, both universities and companies. And now we've launched a number of soft skills courses on edX. And believe it or not, you can teach soft skills online. So we have a 
professional certificate program from uh, Rochester Institute of Technology. It's a fantastic program in soft skills. Uh, it has uh, short courses in critical thinking, storytelling, communication, uh, teamwork and collaboration, presentation skills. And uh, these are extremely popular, uh, not just with individuals, but also with companies. So you, you have a professional certificate soft skills course, and all you have to do is uh, Google soft skills course, and uh, you know Google will take you to the edX soft skills courses. We also have soft skills courses from uh, uh, some companies as well. We have courses on inclusive leadership. Uh, you know, uh, these are very popular, and uh, and uh, they are uh, very much very eminently teachable online. That's great. Uh, many of our listeners are involved in high school education. Do you have any uh, high school partners or high school students on the platform? Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, about uh, 10% of our learners uh, uh, are uh, uh, in high school or close to uh, high school. Uh, uh, many of them are, we have you know, learners on edX who uh, from uh, five years of age to uh, ninety-eight years of age. Wow! <laughs> and uh, and we have a number of and, and our micro bachelor's programs are very appealing to high schoolers because, uh, let's say you're in high school somewhere, and uh, you know take a, a micro bachelor's program from NYU, for instance, in computer science. And so, by the time you graduate from high school, you have courses from a university. Uh, these are all credit backed. You get credit on a university transcript that you can then transfer into uh, various uh, universities. And so you can take college-level classes uh, while you are in high school. And we also have a lot of high school courses on edX. We have uh, a large number of high school AP courses on the platform. Uh, and you can uh, take these for free. And, uh, and uh, from universities like Rice, from uh, MIT, from Boston University. So many top universities are offering a number of these high school AP courses and uh, and of course, micro bachelors will appeal to both high schoolers and others. Any other uh, new and interesting courses on edX that you want to mention? You know, we uh, new and exciting courses keep coming up on a, uh, a regular basis. Um, uh, one of the programs that is causing a lot of recent excitement is a micro masters in finance from uh, Sloan. Uh, some, uh, you know, uh, it's real rock star courses. Um, in finance from MIT, you know, that's making uh, waves. Uh, but we also have some uh, uh, incredible courses in, uh, we just launched some incredible courses in uh, uh, deep learning uh, from the University of Montreal. Uh, you know, you may remember uh, Joshua Bengio uh, won, won the uh, uh, Turing Award in computer science, which is sort of the Nobel for computer science. He, he won it for his uh, path-breaking work in uh, you know, uh, convolutional uh, uh, networks and so on in deep learning. And uh, he is the uh, uh, director of this uh, program. And uh, uh, you can go and see the video. You can go and see him uh, in the videos. And uh, and so uh, uh, we're offering courses from the absolute top in a field, in absolute cutting-edge areas. So to me, this is uh, another of those exciting programs. Anything on the path forward that you can share with us? So I'm, so I'm really excited about uh, micro bachelor's programs, where for the first time, uh, uh, the MOOC movement is now approaching the uh, undergraduate credentials. Uh, you know, we launched MicroMasters uh, five years ago, with a lot of success. Uh, you know, we have 50 MicroMasters on edX today, and uh, over 4 million learners have enrolled in them. 
Uh, we launched microbachelors, which are modular programs at the undergraduate level. And there's a lot of interest uh, from corporations who want to upskill their employee bases. And as you know, uh, you know, various studies are showing that by 2030, half of today's uh, employees will be out of a job. And companies are looking to upskill their workforces uh, and reskill them into newer roles. And so the IT Foundation's micro bachelors, the computer science micro bachelors, are just great examples where companies can pay for their students and uh, sign them up. And, you know, uh, uh, there's an interesting article in Forbes about this being kind of the third wave of education where, uh, you know, the first wave was of online education, where the first wave was uh, for-profit companies uh, making hay with online education, right. and they fell out of favor, uh, you know, like uh, the for-profits like uh, Phoenix and other for-profits. Uh, the second wave was uh, non-profits came out with uh, online learning, oftentimes teaming up with uh, for-profits. And uh, today we are in the third wave, so to speak, where uh, we are now, where companies are getting into it, where they see it as their corporate social responsibility to upskill their employee bases. And uh, so with edX, we are a nonprofit uh, and we offer these programs and uh, they can, the companies can pay for, or learners can pay. First of all, our programs, people can learn for free. Uh, and even if the learners have to pay themselves, it's uh, incredibly low cost. You could earn, you know, as you stack up micro bachelors, it will lead to uh, bachelor's degrees that are uh, in all about $20,000. And so it's very inexpensive and, and companies are willing to pay for that as well. It's, uh, it's really the most exciting part of, uh, of higher education. And, uh, uh, Anant, we appreciate your leadership over the last 20 years. You, you've made uh, great education more accessible to, uh, to everyone on earth. And, uh, we appreciate that. Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, you know, and, and as you know, it, it always takes a village. Uh, huge, huge kudos uh, to our university partners and corporate partners in recognizing, uh, you know, the uh, what a serious issue this is for the world and stepping in to help. And uh, particularly MIT and Harvard for enabling edX right. to launch this as a nonprofit so that we didn't have to go raise money from venture capital where, where you know, uh, ROI for the investor uh, tends to have you move in directions that may not be right. in the best. No, it was really interest. brave uh, leadership uh, for both institutions uh, almost 10 years ago. So we we appreciate it and uh, we, we appreciate your leadership in, the, in this uh, space. Thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Tom. It's been uh, such a pleasure chatting with you. A big thanks to Anant for taking time to talk with us for this week's episode. We appreciate the work that he and his team at edX are doing to extend open access. And for more on all things innovations and learning, be sure to check out our blog at gettingsmart.com. Lastly, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And every Wednesday morning, our latest interview, it will be ready to press play. That's it for today, listeners. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Jessica signing off.